This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Ragcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill. And today we're at the Bowhunters Convention of Wyoming. And, you know, I'm kind of out of my element in this place. There's a bunch of bowhunters running around here and people that are into that. And that's their main thing. That's their love of their life. And I've been feeling a little left out. A little like a fish out of water. Just a little bit, but... And I'm right in my element. We're talking about grizzly bears and mule deer and big bull elk, so... I've been rescued. I've been rescued. Shane Dubois is here with us. He's a guide on Flaming Gorge. He's also the owner of Recon Angling. So you've got Recon Angling, and he's he's an incredible fisherman. Shane's done a lot of great fishing. He's posted some pictures lately that have just blown me away of some massive lake trout from Flaming Gorge Reservoir. And then he also got to do a really cool trip we'll talk about here in a little bit. But Shane, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. We've been trying to get this done for quite a while, and, you know, I had to come to Rock Springs, but we got it done. Yep, we did. <laughs> and so, Thanks for making making the, the, the journey here yeah, today. Yeah, yeah and thanks for making the time to come and visit with us. But give us just a little bit of background on you and, you know, kind of what you do and how you got into fishing. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Door County, Wisconsin, which is kind of the fishing mecca of the United States, uh, you know, smallmouth, muskie, walleye, perch, uh, brown trout, steelhead, kind of all of that. So I get asked quite a bit, how did I end up out west? How did I leave such a great place? Well, I just replaced the Great Lakes with the mountains, which I enjoy. Uh, so I did eight years in the Army as a cavalry scout. And so I got out in Colorado, spent a couple years there. Uh, went and ran professional fishing tournaments for the Masters Walleye Circuit, uh, the Cabela's North American Bass Circuit. Went back to Colorado, didn't really feel like that was home anymore, a little too populated. Uh, started fishing up here in Wyoming, uh, so four and a half years ago now. Seems like yesterday, but made the move out here um, and then just started uh, grinding the gorge. Started guiding. Um, this is my second year full time guiding and fourth year guiding. So I did two years part time just to see if I'd enjoy it or not. And then uh, when COVID happened, they shut my office down here. So that kind of vaulted me into, uh, well, let's see if I can do this full time. And I uh, haven't really looked back since. I've, I've had the opportunity to fish with Shane and I can just tell you guys, like he's the real deal. He knows what he's doing and he puts the time in. I know a lot of anglers, they like to say, oh, well, I'm a good angler and you know, I do this and that, but you can really tell that you take the time and, and you invest it and you do a lot of traveling and you're what I would call an all around angler. You know, you're not just fishing just like trout, you're fishing for everything. Yeah. It's kind of how, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, we'd you know, go out there with my grandpa and we'd go fishing for whatever was biting. So I kind of just kept that mentality and, and ran with it. And I really do pride myself in being a well-rounded angler and not just a guy that fishes one lake. You see a bunch of guys where, you know, they're really good at one lake and uh, they go to others and they struggle. I, I kind of am that now to an extent uh, where I got the gorge dialed in, but 
uh, when I'm not guiding, I, I do like to just randomly go places and just kind of push myself. And I think with anything, hunting, fishing, anything that you do, you know, the more you push yourself, the better you get and the more well-rounded you get. So, you know, right off the gate, if you had to pick one species to fish for <laughs> for the rest of your life, what would it be and how would you fish for it? Oh, man, that's, uh, you know, that's a that's a tough one. You know, lake trout are, are very challenging, but, you know, I would say probably tiger trout. They're, they're so cool. Out of all the fish, they're they're just they're gorgeous they're aggressive and they are a challenge if you're going for the big ones you know the smaller ones typically aren't too hard to get but really getting into those those bigger tiger trout it's uh you know you got to work to get to those fish a lot of them are planted at high mountain lakes so you got to hike you got to you got to put some real you know manpower into catching those fish so i really like that challenge especially out here west uh, it's just a good combination of getting in the outdoors and then just getting out to this. A lot of the places, just such beautiful scenery that's up there. And you do get to see a lot of wildlife and stuff like that when you're up there. But I would say, you know, if you're going to target tiger trout, they like to anything that's got a sharp drop off of a rocky, like a rocky shoreline, they like to hole up in tube jig. It's kind of a go to. You know, it kind of goes in the question if you wanted to expand that to what lure would you use if you could go anywhere, uh, it'd be a tube jig. I mean, it's just one of the most versatile lures ever made. I catch pretty much every fish I've ever gone fishing for on a tube jig. Um, and so you just kind of bounce that tube off the bottom. It just mimics so many different varieties of, of baits and, uh, you know, bait fish for the fish. But that's kind of what I would do. Yeah, and I love tiger trout. I think they're one of the coolest looking fish. That yep. I mean, of course, they're a hybrid, and I think hybrids are cool. Like yep. tiger muskies are cool too. Yep. You know, you talked about the challenge of that. You know, I also think of like golden trout, the same kind of a lure, right? Like you actually have to work to go find a golden yep. trout and get them to actually commit and bite. Talking about the gorge a little bit, talk a little bit about what your guiding business is like. You know, what kind of fish you take people out for because the gorge is known for more than just lake trout. Yeah, so, you know, uh, typically a lot of people hire me for, you know, big fish. They want that big, they want that big lake trout. And that's kind of what I specialize in. But, you know, there's a kind of added features. I call them when you're out fishing for big fish, you catch a couple big ones. It's like, okay, what do we do now? And so the gorge, I think is one of the most underrated smallmouth fisheries in the West. There's a lot of three to four and a half pound fish and quite a few fish, you know, that five to five and a half pound range too and uh here in about a month is one of my favorite times to go and target smallmouth you know working the shorelines with jerk baits that pre-spawn bite it's an absolute blast and you can actually do that from shore just the way you know most of these western reservoirs are kind of flooded canyons so that provides a lot of opportunity not only for anglers out on the boat but those of you who don't have a boat can go out from shore and be really successful with smallmouth here at the gorge using jerk baits and in tube jigs. And then we also have, you know, kokanee salmon, which gorge is world famous for, uh, for kokanees. And um, so we'll go target big fish. And then usually the last hour or two of the day, we'll go, we'll go troll around or cast for cast or jig for kokanee, depending on the time of the year. And do pretty good limiting out, you know, a lot of three to four pound kokanee's the last couple of years. And uh, so 
not only do you come out, you know, get a picture with a big fish, but you get to take home some fish as well to enjoy. And so explain what a kokanee salmon is. Maybe some of the listeners aren't familiar with what a kokanee actually is. Yeah, so it's all it really is is a, you know, landlocked sockeye salmon, um, you know, layman terms. Uh, those of you guys have seen, you know, up in Alaska, you see these great big kiped red, red salmon with the green heads. Uh, it's just a smaller version of that. Um, you know, they do get up to about 26 inches out here at the gorge. But typically, you know, you're looking in that uh, 20 to 22 inch range uh, is a really good salmon for out here um, and they they put up a heck of a fight too for their size they pack a punch yeah and they're delicious yes so you spoke a little bit about just stepping back to tiger muskies do you see a correlation between kind of when you were in the service and going out on a mission and is there kind of a blend between hey i'm going on this ruck hike march to go up to these high mountain lakes and mission specific catch this fish and come back is there a correlation and does that transcend from military life to personal life now yeah so i think if you look at a lot of veterans um just not myself but a lot of us when we get out look for something that is uh challenging and rewarding and so with the tiger trout and especially the lake trout it's more you know surgical and technical fishing a lot of times with those type of fish and so that really, you know, that attention to detail is kind of driven into you, uh, especially, you know, if you had uh, combat arms experience, it's driven into you that attention to detail. And that really translated over for me and my success with lake trout and then, you know, hiking up to these lakes and stuff like that. That was one of the few things, you know, about the, the stuff we had to do over and over, you know, hiking and running and I hate to run, so I always tell people, if you see me running, you should probably run too because <laughs> something bad's coming. Uh, Please I'll, kill whatever's yeah, behind me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, hiking, I, it's one of the things that I really enjoy. Uh, I'm like, I'm okay, you know, speed-wise, but once I get going, it's hard for me to want to stop. I just like, you know, once you get, when you probably know from, you know, hiking and hunting that once you get going, it, it feels good. And if you stop and slow down, it's like starting that process all over again. But going back, you know, into that question, there's a lot of correlation from guys. You see the hobbies they take up after they're out of the military. It's, there's a lot of stuff that's attention to detail and it just kind of, you know, it, it's a good blend of that military and civilian life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You talked about it just a few years ago. You, you kind of had a disruption, right? Like your office got shut down and it was like, okay, well, is this the time? So can you talk a little bit about that? Kind of what kind of launched you into doing this full time? Yeah. So looking back on it, you know, the job was kind of holding me back from, you know, cause you, you get that comfort zone, especially with stuff that's going on. A lot of people can relate, you know, times are a little bit tougher, you know, money wise. And so it's, uh, it was a good, uh, good fallback, you know, making really good money at the job that I was doing, which was, uh, the veteran service coordinator for Western Wyoming. And I enjoyed doing that, but you know, I always felt like I was meant to do something more and, uh, guiding was definitely something that I wanted to do and enjoyed doing, but there was always that question in the back of my head of, I don't know if I could do this full time. Like, am I going to be able to make enough money? Um, something like that. You know, I had a couple of friends that were like, you just got to take the plunge. Like you won't know until you take the plunge and it won't be as bad as you, th as you think. And, uh, so when they started the process of shutting my office down, I was, I was pretty upset. Um, you know, cause 
this is a pretty challenging area, especially in winter, to get to. And uh, as things progressed, uh, you know, I just kind of like, well, you know, this is a good time of the year. It was kind of at the end of the summer. I was traveling quite a bit for that job and then guiding on the weekends, so I didn't really have a lot of personal time. But it ended up being a great time to just recharge my batteries and kind of focus on a lifelong dream. And looking back on it right now, it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. I've never been, you know, so, I guess, joyful with life and more and relaxed for the most part. You know, this fall was was challenging uh, with having boat issues, which can't do trips if I don't have a boat. And uh, the ice didn't show up forever, so it's kind of a double whammy. So things got a little skinny for a bit, but I've always been fortunate enough to where times are tough, I know I always pull out, and so it everything worked out, and here we are. So I'm hearing some similarities with some other entrepreneurs that I've followed and listened to about you know that journey and just being committed. And yeah, there's you know you got to hustle, you got to get out there, and yep. you got to, but you also have to make the commitment and the the mindful step that this is what I'm going to do, and you've got to commit to it that. I'm going to be a fishing guide on Flaming Gorge, right? Yep. And okay, this fall wasn't uber successful, and now we're going to move to the tertiary things to make this dream and goal happen. But it sounds like you persisted really, you know, and it, it, I've heard that, you know, similar in a lot of guys' stories about, you know, whether they want to be the next CEO of a big company or whatever it is, you know, that, that switch from that comfort zone of, hey, I'm in this job that is helping me to, you know, it's actually kind of been holding me back to, from doing what I'm meant to or what I want to do. So I'm glad that you're you're here and you've been able to make that step. Just talk a little bit about boat issues. You know, I always joke that boat stands for break out another thousand because yeah. it's 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 always something. There's there's typically an issue with with boat motors or maybe your trolling motor. That's that's yep. always a fun one with electronics. So. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges guides face, boats, boat maintenance, and of course, you know, clients too, but. Yeah, so as most people that own boats know, you know, the two happiest days are uh, when you buy the boat and when you sell it. So (laughs) then you got to, you got to get that in between time period on there. Um, But yeah, being a guide and and using a boat um, day in, day out, it, you know, all your equipment takes a beating. So I kind of learned the hard way last year. You know, I have to uh, do maintenance a lot better and a lot more than what I was when I was doing it part-time. You know, you, you can just see the degradation of pretty much everything as it gets used every day. And, uh, you know, boats, to be honest, and this isn't a knock at, you know, any particular company, but they're not made to be used every single day, you know. And so you, you start seeing some things that normal people wouldn't a lot quicker just keeping up on small things like changing your spark plugs out on the boat every 100 hours. That fourth one is always a pain on these Mercury Verados because you have to take the bottom cowling off. So it takes you uh, probably 10 minutes to take the top three spark plugs out. And then what I found out on my boat is previous owner thought the same thing and never messed with the fourth spark plug. (laughs) (laughs) I took that sucker out and it was... uh, you could tell it never been never been messed with or anything, but it, it led to, you know, issues with my ignition coils, which led to issues with my injectors. Um, and so I had a pretty big scare. Um, initially, you know, I thought I had a blown head gasket. That's what I was told. And, uh, you know, the repair bill on that was about $14,000. And so that's a huge hit when you're not 
you know, bringing in money. So it was a real sucker punch. And, you know, luckily I, I when I was hustling, I, I paid some toys off and uh, I, work, I worked hard for these, uh, you know, my snowmobiles I have. And, um, you know, so I, I had to do some finagling, but just, you know, keeping up on that small maintenance stuff. So the small things lead to big things, right? So, you know, relationships, you know, out there fishing, your car stuff. If you keep up on the small stuff, the bigger things tend to fall in line. If you don't work on the small stuff, the big things remind you very quickly there's a problem. Uh, and that's kind of the, the best thing with owning a boat and keeping that maintenance part of it. But the other flip side of it is having having a marine shop that you can trust and you know that if there, hey, if there is a problem, you know, they're going to take care of you. And I found out the hard way on the flip side, if you don't have that, the issues that happen, you know, luckily now, um, you know, just do a, a quick shout out to Crawley Marine in Denver. But, um, you know, those guys are amazing. Uh, you know, they they take care of all their customers, um, and they just, they, they go the extra mile to get it done. And so if you guys are out there trying to figure out what's going on or just what your boat maintenance, find a boat dealer that you have a good rapport with and have a huge trust. It just, it alleviates the headaches that when you do have a problem, you know, you're going to get taken care of and it doesn't turn into a six month ordeal. Like I had to take, like I had to deal with. That's a long time yeah. to, have to deal with that. Yeah. I, I know boat issues. We, we put a <laughs> boat motor on, on the Alaska boat that hopefully Patrick and I will be uh, using. And then, yeah, the, uh, with this job, my boat has not uh, got out and seen the water lately, <laughs> but been a little busy at trade shows. Yep. Yeah, so let's get back into Flaming Gorge a little bit because I, growing up here in Wyoming, it's always been known as one of the top two, you know, two or three. You know, when you talk about top places to go fish in the state, you typically hear the Flaming Gorge, the Glendo, the Boyson. You know, those are kind of the ones that get kicked around a lot. And it's obviously it's a great fishery for certain species. So if you could just kind of go through the different options that anglers have at Flaming Gorge, I think that would be really cool for them. Yeah, and, you know, the gorge in the last, you know, 10 years or so has really become popular for burbot, right? And so growing up in Wisconsin, personally, um, you know, we call burbot lawyers or eel pout. It's cool to catch one, but I don't, you know, we never got crazy over it. So it is pretty interesting to see just the different dynamic out here where people go absolutely ballistic for burbot which is a good thing at the gorge, right? Because they're an invasive species that were illegally introduced to the gorge. And so uh, a lot of people are familiar with the Burbot Bash, which is a big ice fishing tournament they have usually in late January to help you know alleviate and eradicate the burbot that are out here. Uh, what we have been seeing the last couple of years is the size of the burbot has gone down. Um, you know, I think biggest burbot this year is only, I think, 31 inches. You know, in other years, you know, it's 36, 37 inches. And so you're seeing a lot of these older fish that have been here a little bit longer kind of be taken out of the system. And now there's a lot of, saw a lot of like 18 to 24 inch burbot this year. Um, not a lot of huge numbers of those bigger size burbot. And what we're also seeing is, you know, another fish that's in here, the lake trout, right? Uh, which predominantly eats the kokanee. So it's a big circle of life, everything eating everything else. But we're starting to see, especially this winter, catching a lot of, you know, 15 to 20 pound lake trout that have burbot hanging out of their mouth. Where this year, I think we caught five or six fish that size that had burbot hanging out of their mouth. And the last three years combined, maybe saw one. Um, so it's, 
it's definitely a, a good sign, you know, because any other lakes in Canada and stuff like that, the bourbon eat it, or the lake trout will eat bourbon. Another opportunity, you know, they stocked the uh, Bear Lake Cutthroat, I think, four years ago, um, and those fish are doing really good, really aggressive, really cool-looking f- fish, uh, really good table fare as well. They stock rainbow trout in the gorge, and uh, there, you know, a lot of opportunity from shore with that. There was a lot of guys down at Buckboard this morning fishing the shorelines. Uh, it's really popular for guys. Some of the old-timers will remember the gorge was known worldwide for monster brown trout. And, uh, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, that's something I can appreciate is catching browns over 20 pounds. You know, I remembered reading when I was probably 15 or 16, reading about a lake out west that I had no clue about that had monster browns in it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, like out west. And uh, But to move here and talk to guys about it, yeah, it, it was a tremendous brown trout fishery. It is kind of on the rebound for guys. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more browns here. I did have a gentleman last year uh, that caught one that was just shy of 16 pounds. Um, so we were able to weigh it uh, successfully without harming the fish and release it back. So we're working on some stuff with Game and Fish to reintroduce some structure to the gorge to kind of help out, you know, those smaller fish like the Utah chub that are also in the gorge and often overlooked are the fish that the other fish eat. But to bring that brown trout fishery back, um, maybe not to what it was, but at least if you wanted to go catch a big brown, you'd have a fair shot out here. Um, you got smallmouth, which is, you know, over the last couple of years um, has really taken a hit with the burbot as well. Burbot ate most of their food source and a lot of the little bass. And that, we saw that again this year too when we did the burbot bash. A lot of burbot coming in with, you know, two to four inch bass burping out of their mouths. Um, but yeah, the smallmouth fishery, like we mentioned earlier, it's an underrated bass fishery in the West. And then, you know, going into Kokanee, uh, Flaming Gorge has always been known for just massive, big Kokanee salmon. Probably the best eating fish, in my opinion, that the gorge has. But that has drawn a lot of interest, especially in the last couple of years from other states as well, from people from California, Washington, Oregon, all come out to the gorge uh, for kokanee salmon. And uh, one of the least known fish in the gorge is catfish, channel catfish. Yeah. And there's been some big ones that have been caught out here. Does it still have the state record out of Flaming Gorge? I believe think it, so. I think it is still the state record, right? 27 pounds. Yeah, that's a huge channel cat. Yep. And uh, the carp, too, are enormous. I've seen some absolute monster carp trolling, you know, kind of going along the shorelines. I mean, there are some massive carp in there. Yeah, I had one come uh, up my hole this year, and I about flew out of my hut. (laughs) I was just sitting there, and I, you know, halfway paying attention, looked down the hole, and this big black thing. At first, I thought it was like the front of the mouth of a giant, like, 50-pound lake trout, but it was the head of... It was a 30-pound carp. I've never seen a carp so fat. I mean, he poked, came up my hole and then swam away. But, yeah, I, I about flew out of my hut. And then about 10 minutes later, he, he came back swimming. And so I was out in 70 feet of water. You know, I was not expecting to see a carp. He was just <laughs> cruising right under the ice. So, yeah, incredible opportunities. So I have some history with Flaming Gorge. My grandparents every summer would uh, pull the motorhome down there and spend six weeks trolling and we did a lot of rainbows i mean it's a decent rainbow fishery right and we would stop and do some lake trout fishing but 
when you got four little kids, grandkids in a boat, you know, trying to keep them on task. And <laughs> so we didn't, we, we never really targeted the lake trout, but we would, we'd troll until we got a limit of, of rainbows on that. Is the rainbow fishing still good? Yeah, it's good. Uh, you, you probably won't see the size that you, you did back then. Even since I've lived here the first couple of years, you know, you had shots at five or six pound rainbows. And, uh, you know, now you get a 20, 22-inch rainbow. That's, you know, a pretty big rainbow now. And every once in a while, you'll see one that's 24 uh, inches. But, you know, there's some stuff we're working on to change at the gorge to just kind of make it an all-around good fishery for all the species. You know, it's kind of like the Wild West, right? There's a lot of (laughs) no regulations um, and protection for some of these fish. So we're working... Uh, with Buckboard Marina and, and Game and Fish to change that to improve the fishery for everybody. So what are what are you guys doing about, you know, pup lake trout, you know, the smaller two to four pounders? Because I know that at one time when I was growing up, they were just everywhere. I mean, there were tons and tons of them. Is that still an issue? And what, what are you guys doing about that? Yeah, that's a great question that tying kind of what we were talking about. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't want to like raise alarms or get people nervous, but you know, we're at kind of a precipice right now at the gorge where, you know, the lake is on the verge of crashing because there's too many mouths to feed. And so a, a real big focus on that right now, obviously is the burbot, but We have the lake trout as well. So anything, you know, under 25 inches, especially that 18 to 23-inch range, you know, if you're out there fishing, you know, take as many as you can towards your limit, which is 12, out of the lake that size because that's everything's eating the salmon out there. And so if you do the numbers of how many lake trout there are at the lake, and that's just lake trout, right? So you, you have a population of, you know, let's say 150, 200,000 of these fish. And, you know, game and fish is stocking between the two states, three to four million kokanee a year. But I can tell you from fishing out there, a lot of these smaller fish have two to three salmon or stalker rainbows in their stomach at any given time. So you do the math on that and that eats up almost all the salmon that are being stocked. And so that's just the lake trout that doesn't account for burbot, doesn't account for the birds eating, you know, doesn't account for the fishermen. Um, So I know the game and fish is really stressing people to come out and and harvest those smaller lake trout. Um, Otherwise they're going to have to come in and, and commercially net these fish, which is the next step. And we don't want that because, you know, you can come in, commercially net fish you know you have the potential to hurt those bigger fish and to kill those bigger fish and that's kind of the prized possession of the gorge is a the salmon and b you know the trophy lake trout and you're starting to see a lot of these trophy lake trout the size of them go down and to kind of throw that out there you see a lot of the tournaments this year um, like the big lucerne derby Um, they have a 45 inch minimum in order to enter a fish into the contest. And that's direct correlation into with both Utah and Wyoming working together, kind of throwing the alarm out there of, hey, like this lake's going to crash. Your big fish are about to be gone uh, if we don't do something now. And so uh, you'll start seeing a lot of these tournaments kind of do away with those big fish categories as we're kind of really trying to preserve and protect those big fish. And so 
that's one thing that I kind of pride myself too at the gorge is usually when that water gets above 70, I don't do big fish trips anymore. I shut it down. And so um, I'm one of the few guides on the lake that, that do that. That's just because, you know, growing up, I have tremendous respect for fish and the resource that's there. It's not something that any of us should take for granted because it can easily go away as quick as it came. Yeah. And I have good news for everybody is that pup lake trout are actually really good to eat. Oh, and yeah. so if you're looking for a fish that's a really good one to smoke, a small pup lake trout is like the ideal fish. So you can get that high mountains, you know, brine, yep. fish brine, get your 12 fish, take them home, flay them out, put them in that brine overnight, rinse them off really good, smoke them. You'll have amazing, amazing food that you can, you know, vacuum seal and freeze and put on crackers with cream cheese with people. You oh, know, yeah. it's good stuff. And so do you take people and go do that too? Like try to encourage people to be like, Hey, we just caught two really nice Lakers. Let's go catch, you know, a limit of small pups. Yeah, that is something we do. You know, typically uh, we'll go out, catch a couple big fish and then, you know, we'll go after the pups. We'll go after salmon, you know, catch a couple rainbows. Uh, you know, especially if, if we got younger kids on the boat, big fish fishing can be, uh, very tedious and boring if it is slow like that we try to mix it up or if i'm trolling i'll mix it up and put some stuff down there so we can catch both at the same time and it it really does it works really well i mean you, like we kind of mentioned in the beginning you go out there right catch a couple big fish and then we go we go get some meat for the freezer and it's that's one of my i guess proud moments right as a guide is uh, you're not going home with just a picture of a big fish, but you're going home with something that you can eat and share with your family too. And I think that's a an overlooked factor of, of doing trips. So how many people can go on the boat? Uh, so I'm licensed through the Coast Guard. I actually have my captain's license, so we're limited at six. So, and to that point, like as a guide, you know, when you're taking out a group of people, what are the things that you do to prepare for that trip? Yeah, so uh, usually... W- you know, prepping for trips, uh, kind of communicate with the with the client to see, you know, hey, what, what do we want to fish for? Do we want to just fish for big fish? Uh, do we want to mix it up? And then once I get a good idea what they want to do, I, I rig the boat out. You know, if they want to do everything, you know, we usually do the big fish first, get the, the biggest hurdle accomplished, making sure all of my stuff is my line doesn't have any nicks in it looking for you know frays or keeping up with equipment so walking through a typical day guiding in the summer usually wake up about four o'clock in the morning start the coffee um you know (laughs) that that way i'm nice and uh awake when six o'clock rolls around and when clients come but you know, I usually go through and double check the stuff I've done the night before with the boat, make sure everything charged, just kind of get ready for the day, meet customers, go out, you know, fish, you know, walk through safety procedures when out on the water. Um, I always, you know, people give me a lot of grief because I don't really know how to swim too well. <laughs> and so they're like, well, how can you be a fishing guide if you don't know how to swim? I'm like, well, if I'm in the water, I'm not doing my job very good. So, <laughs> you know, I always I would joke around with customers, but, you know, walk through safety, you know, life jackets. Even though I'm out in the water all the time, you'll see me a lot of time, especially in spring when that water's cold, I'm wearing an automatic inflating life life vest because if I go over, peace of mind for me, I know I don't have to worry that my clients have to worry about me. Right. You know, and so I try to take myself out of the equation, but 
making sure you have, you know, throwable life jackets, stuff like that in the boat, go over safety procedures. And this is something I think people overlook before they go out is having a plan. If something goes wrong, what are you going to do? Yeah. What, what are we going to do? And so I kind of go over that with clients. And uh, once we're done with that, we go fish. And then when the day's over, you know, I go through all my gear. I'm, I'm checking, I'm checking my line. I'm looking at my baits. I'm looking at, you know, if I'm trolling, I'm looking to see if I need to, you know, redo any of my sets of blades that I'm using. Just small stuff like that, going over, checking my boat, right? Making sure my bilge pump works, making sure, you know, my batteries are charging and my terminals are clean. I found that out the hard way, too. If you, <laughs> you don't make sure those terminals are clean or everything's tightened down, you'll find out when you're on the water. You so, can't start your boat. Yeah, yeah. that's a problem. And talk a little bit about Flaming Gorge, because I've had some very scary situations myself on Flaming Gorge in smaller boats back in the day, you know. Um, that that body of water can get nasty in a hurry, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you can count on the wind showing up about 11 to 1 every day, so... Uh, you know, keeping an eye out for that, watching the sky for storms. I've been out in a few hairy situations um, out there where you look and it's like, oh, the storm's, you know, on the other side of the mountain, I'm good. And then you get reminded very quickly that Mother Nature doesn't care and lightning travels very far, very fast. You know, I had scary situation out there where the skies were basically clear, but you could see a storm coming, you know, and it was probably 10 or 15 miles away. And so I was like, all right, well, it's time to go in, you know, and was out with my friend. And so we started driving across the lake. The wind came up out of nowhere and lightning hit right in front of the boat, like probably 30 feet. I've never seen that happen before, you know, and it just deafening, you know, sound that you feel through your whole body. And, uh, you know, we shut everything down and started back up and went in. And I just remember this guy's like, oh, he comes running down to the ramp. You know, he's freaked out. And he, are you guys all right? And he's like, I saw you get hit by lightning. I'm like, oh, we didn't get hit. I said, but it was right in front of us. But the clouds were 10 or 12 miles away. So it's just a reminder out there that just because the storm is in the mountains doesn't mean that you're safe, especially with lightning. But yeah, the wind out there um, is is relentless. It's more so on the north end. So I live full time at Buckboard now, and all it does in the afternoon most days is just rip up there. You can it'll be forty mile an hour winds, and you go down to Lucerne, and it's calm, you know. And there's it's of course the Wyoming side's always more windy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know the. It's um, it's definitely a place you know if you're if you're out there it doesn't matter how big your boat is out there, you know just to keep an eye on the wind directions and stuff. Just because you're safe where you're at right there doesn't mean that when you go back in, that you're going to be able to safely get back in. It's just something to something to keep in mind. Um, you know, service up there, you know, as technology advances, telephone service is getting better up there, but having a walkie-talkie or a CB radio that a lot of people overlook elsewhere. You know, it's like, well, why do you, what's this box on your boat? Like, why do you have this? It's like, well, most of the time you don't get service anywhere. Mm -hmm. So if something does happen, you have no ability to call anybody to come help you. And it's a huge reservoir. If something were to happen to you, say you change plans, you go down towards Anvil Draw, something happens, someone's got to find you. And cell phones aren't great on the gorge. I mean, they're... 
there's I know mine doesn't work with a darn down there. Um, but yeah, you want to have a the ability to get a hold of somebody and say, hey, I'm down at whatever spot, you know, yep. and I need help getting out of here. Because it, it, gets, it gets real. I remember one time we were camped, I think it was just north of Anvil Draw, and you have to come out into the main lake to get to the boat ramp, you know, come back around to get to the boat ramp. Well, I almost couldn't make it. I mean, the waves were so big, my little tiny boat. We were taking on water. We made it, but it was one of the scariest drives in oh, a yeah. boat I've ever had. I've had it on Boyson kind of like that once or twice too. But, I mean, it'll get your attention in a hurry, and, yeah, safety is a big deal out there because it's, it's a very deep reservoir, and it's very, very big. Yeah, especially here in the next couple months, right? You know, the, wa- the weather's starting to warm up, and it might be 60, 70 degrees, but that water's still 38, 40 degrees, and your body's going to let you know real quick that it's not fun to be in, you know? So yeah. it's just being prepared and... You know, stuff freezes in the morning, you know, boat surfaces, stuff like that. It doesn't take a whole lot to fall out of a boat. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it's bucking really bad. Yeah. The last time I was fishing for lake trout down there on that gorge, uh, Search and Rescue was actually using side sonar looking for a guy because his boat was just floating right there by the dam. And he, he went out fishing that day. I mean... I don't know who it was exactly, but the story I heard was he went fishing solo on his boat. They found the boat floating, you know, just there in the middle of the water with no one around. So, Yeah, I remember last year I was out there, and year before last, actually. It was in April, and I remember this well, I was guiding for Cedar Springs and doing trips out there. It was late April, and these guys were out on this 14-foot aluminum boat. They were out there having a good time, you know, having a few adult beverages and shirts off and all kinds of stuff. And then the wind came up later. And, you know, I, I went in before the wind wind came up and, uh, you know, they had to go out and get them. And one of the guys didn't come back. And they were from Vernal, you know, so yeah. they should have known better. But it's just poor decisions, you know, just not paying attention to the weather. You know, going out in a small craft with four <clears throat> big guys, Probably not on the PPE they needed. Exactly. Yeah. Life vest, man. Life vest. Yep. Like we had Matt Good. He's from Search and Rescue in Fremont County on, and he talked about that because we lost um, a young man up at Pilot Beat Reservoir this year. Same thing. He just didn't have a vest on. And that's all it takes. I mean, yep. you get tired. And in that cold water, you know, you were talking about that. I remember a story. This has been, gosh, Shane, probably like 12 years ago. But you've probably fished Sunshine Reservoir up by Matiti, yep. right? Well, one spring, it was like April, this guy and his son, they went out there fishing and they kind of, they were trying to load the boat and something happened and it came loose and it floated off. Well, the dad went out to swim after it and he was in his fifties. Well, that cold water killed him. He had a, he had a heart attack from that cold water and he ended up dying there at the reservoir. So, I mean, it's things like, it was a nice day. Yep. But that water was really, really cold, and you don't typically think of that, but you have to yep. in places like Wyoming, especially the gorge. Yeah, it doesn't take long to get your core body temperature to go down when that water's that low. You know, we had a situation down at Buckboard this year where, you know, Tony, the owner, had to jump in after his dogs because, you know, English uh, bulldogs don't swim, <laughs> or French bulldogs, sorry, yeah. don't swim, and they were out there chasing coots and went into the water, but... You know, the worst part was getting out of the water is you get to that point where your extremities start locking up. 
you know, and it doesn't take very long in that cold water for the, your core temperature to drop to where the circulation is gone from your extremities. And then, you know, if you're not breathing correctly, you just, you tense up, lock up, and you're, that's it. Game over. For yep. the, yeah. David knows that from living in Alaska. You know, I, uh, stories about that. <laughs> so I did off water, uh, offshore water survival safety training in Alaska and in the Gulf of Mexico because I worked offshore oil field both places, right? And it's very funny is offshore uh, Alaska water survival training is a five-minute video and you put on a Gumby life suit, you know, big, right? You zip it up and you get a helicopter right out to one of the platforms you go to work, right? Offshore water survival training in uh, Louisiana and Texas is a three-day course. They put you in a mock helicopter body. They spin it upside down. You have to evacuate the helicopter and do all these things and take this course, right? Well, the difference is the water temperature in the Gulf of Mexico is 70 or 60 degrees. You can float out there for a week until they come pick you up. Uh, you've got 30 seconds without a Gumby suit. You have three to five minutes with a Gumby suit. If you go in the water in in the Gulf of Alaska in the winter. Just a totally different world, that's for sure. But, yeah, safety, you you mentioned something about, you know, just the morning, a little bit of ice on the bow of that boat, you step in the wrong spot, you slip, you hit your head on the boat, then you fall in the water, and you don't, doesn't matter how strong a swimmer you are, you know, it's game over. Yep, so. Especially a person like me, because I'm not coordinated, so I'd be that guy that falls. But I do have to ask you about something. You got to do a really cool trip recently with Eric Hadia, who's one of the best fishermen of all time, in my opinion, and just, he's amazing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like? Yeah, it was pretty fun. So I've known Eric for a few years. We've chatted back and forth on Facebook and Instagram and finally able to link up with both of our schedules and get out there. Um, and so... Yeah, got up there at 5.30 in the morning. Um, you know, he was already getting stuff set up. Uh, he has uh, a gentleman, Tony, that, that helps him out now. And uh, so they're out there getting ready. So we got there. We're kind of like, you know, hey, what's going on? Like, you know, chit-chatting. And we look, and there's already a rod banging. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, there's one over there. So we, you know, jaw jackers. I'm like, oh, there's something I know, you yeah. know. We run over to the jaw jacker, and, you know, the first fish of the day was like a 13, 14-pound male brown, just Jeez. big old kipe on it. And, yeah, I was like, you know, it's cool, too, right, because you're in downtown Milwaukee, so you right. got the skyscrapers and stuff behind you. The sun isn't even up yet. It's just twilight. So you get the the cool background behind you of, you know, the buildings all lit up, the sun barely coming up with this big brown, you know, and so he's like, "All right, cool. Well, you back to business, right?" <laughs> he had two more people coming, so he's like, "I got to get these rods set up." So he's getting that, and I think before these other people showed up, we caught uh, two or three fish. Wow! And uh, it was just just a great time. I mean, he's got he's got the system down there. You know, you go out there, the hut set up. You walk in there, you can jig inside the hut and you got rods out with jaw jackers you know they go off you run and grab them and you know you get to be uh go on live you know with thousands of people watching when you got you know the big fish but it was a good time he's a he's a great angler great guy and he makes it pretty enjoyable out there just you know oh there's another another big one (laughs) he's like oh yeah that's a big one but it's you know it's interesting out there because uh you know, these browns do their big runs, but they do remind me of these big lake trout, right? Where they just, they go, you get them up to the hole, and then they just go straight down. You know, we're only in 13 feet of water, so 
there's really nowhere for them to go straight down, so they go run off to the side, and you know you're, he uses uh, six to eight pound tests. Oh, that'd be fun. So you know, and uh, he's got his hot rods yep. and the forty inch. It's a pretty limber rod, but it's really good for fighting those fish because you think you know big fish, big hooks, big tackle. He does it the opposite way. So I mean, the rods are forty inches, but light action, that medium to light action. Six to eight pound test, very small hooks. It, it was a blast. And the hardest part, you know, is when we went out with them, going back to, you know, if there's something that's going to happen to you, it's going to happen when you're guiding, right? His 10-inch yeah. auger broke down on him, uh, his electric one, so we had to use the 8-inch. So a lot of these huge fish we were catching, we had to, like, sit and uh, course to come up an 8-inch hole. Yeah. And it's not easy with a 10-inch hole. So it was it was pretty challenging with an eight inch hole and just seeing those fish come up. You know, you'd see them down at the bottom of the hole, just sitting there, and it's like, all right, here we go. We're gonna get its head up. And you'd go, his head would come up just a little bit, and then it'd be like, no, nah, I'm not ready to come up. So literally, you see it turn its head back the other way, and it's like, all right, here we go. We're gonna do the whole process again, right? And the whole time you're like okay like i hope the line doesn't break like we've yeah. seen how big this fish is which is cool because we know but i want a picture with it too right there is so. something about big fish and just yeah. there's an electricity oh, in the air you know when when whether you're netting them or coming up through the ice or it's it's exciting to hook a big fish and then they're, okay it's exciting to hook any fish right yep. but then when you know it's a big fish it's a, yep. the, there's an intensity that creeps up and i can just imagine so how thick was the ice we were out, I think it was 13 inches. So, yeah. was, so we you were, got a 13-inch pipe, 8 inches in diameter. Yeah. <laughs> You're trying to slide a fish through. We're not talking an yeah. inch-thick you no. know, piece of ice. No, it's definitely different. You know, out here in Wyoming, there's no hole regulation. So when I'm fishing for big fish, a lot of times I'll do two or three 10-inch holes, um, you know, to get these fish up. So it was, uh, you know, that challenge factor you know was heightened a little bit catching those fish but it you know was it was a great time and uh i told eric when i was out there i'm like i don't miss i don't miss this cold and he knew exactly what i was talking about you know the younger guy that was out there tony yeah he's like humid i thought it was kind of nice out here i'm like (laughs) you go you go fish out in the west and i tell people this all the time i'll take 30 below here any day over 30 degrees in wisconsin yeah, and you you wear the right gear for it. Like you're geared out in your striker stuff yeah. to keep warm, so that makes a huge difference for you. So yeah, that helps. So uh, I have a question about dynamic lures. And all right, bring me up to speed. I'm I'm the hunting side of this, right? Oh, so. I know all about these guys. Yeah, go for it. Um, just where'd the company start? Why do you use them? And you know, what's the benefit over some of the other lures? Yeah, so uh, dynamic started with Brian back in 2009. Um, and so the story, as I was told, is guy that got sick and tired of shaving the bills on another lure company's lure to make them swim better in the rivers. So he decided to talk to his uncle and start his own lure company. So he did that, and then about six months later, I came along, and we just started working together. And I did a lot of the marketing and the foot traffic stuff, and you know Brian did the designing and stuff like that. But it really is a company that is, you know, fishing lures for fishermen made and designed by fishermen. And there was a lot of struggles early on. You know, we tried to do the whole American-made thing. Uh, didn't work out because we just didn't have the money to do the, 
to fill the volume that some of these people had for minimums. Um, so we found a manufacturer in, in China, and he's actually a dual citizen. So our stuff is made in a small town about the size of Rock Springs, 20, 30,000 people in China. All of our stuff is hand-painted. Um, so we like to still think we're a small company that helps a community, and we certainly... Um, you know, a lot of the stigma with, oh, it's made in China, right? Like this and that. But a lot of people don't realize is it's got to come through customs, right? We got Americans working in customs. It's got to get delivered out to the West, shipping. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And we're, we design it, you know, here in the United States. So it's a good, it's a good uh, combination. But uh, what kind of sets us apart is uh, just kind of back to that attention to detail. Before anything really hits the market, uh, we do a lot of testing with myself. I'm super hard on stuff, so if you guys know anybody that wants to know how well something holds up, just give it to me, because uh, if it's going to break, I'll do it pretty quick. But Well, we'll have to give them a bow spider, because yeah. it comes with a lifetime warranty. <laughs> if you break it, I'll fix it. But, yeah, we, we and if something isn't working out, we don't release it. Uh, so, we're, you know, right now we're working on a four-inch uh, jerkbait called the Z-Spec, and uh, we're right at production. Got a couple pre-production models, mate. Doesn't doesn't swim the way I want it to. It doesn't swim the way Brian wants it to. So we're back at the drawing board with that. But that's um, the way it should be. Yeah, and but you know a lot of our stuff we're we're still a fairly small company, but uh, we strive on uh, you know trout fishing. You know, really gearing mm-hmm. up for fishing the rivers. And the J spec is kind of it was the HD trout was the staple, which is a two inch, you know, uh, jerk bait, crank bait combination, but it was made to fish the river with slack water. It's where you get action with a lot of other baits, uh, before they're made for the rivers, but they're made from moving water. Um, but a lot of the big fish you'll see will kind of sit on the edge of those tailwaters or the eddies. Um, and it's a, the HD trout is a slow sinking too, so it allows you to go down a little bit deeper. Um, you got the J spec, which is is my favorite. My favorite, yeah. <laughs> um, that thing catches just about anything yeah. you want it to catch. I probably have like thirty of those things, and I like them for walleyes. I like them for trout. You know, this last year. I think the first walleye I caught in open water was on one of those, and it was the perch color. Yep. And uh, things had gotten kind of slow. I had been snap jigging, and I was like, I'm going to try that for a little bit and threw it out along the shoreline and caught a 22-inch walleye. So, I mean, they they work really well. Oh, yeah. And I like the pink. Yeah. You guys got to keep the (laughs) pink color. If you guys discontinue the pink, I'm going to be so upset because that thing catches a lot of walleye and a lot of trout. Yeah, my biggest... uh call or my biggest wyoming um walleye i got lake trout on the brain so i'm trying to force my <laughs> brain to say walleye but um it came on the bubble gum below the dam uh yeah. that boys and it was 28 inches and nice. he meant glendo yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no that bubble gum is killer yeah i, I may have lure. used that lure once or twice yeah so. I might have taken him and you had him use it. I also like that one. It's it's what it's kind of like a silver and black. It's yeah, kind hollow of a, foil silver. I like that thing. Yep, it works really well, and it works really well at night. Surprisingly, like I, I remember fishing it. I think it was a year ago or something like that, under a full moon at night, and it was whacking the walleye. pretty good. Yeah, the nine mile goby is pretty good too. It looks like a combo. It could be anything to a juvenile walleye crappie. It just mimics a bunch of stuff, but that's been a pretty good one too. 
Yeah, and I did catch a crappie at Keyhole last year. It surprised me on uh, the HD trout. I was actually out there just kind of twitching along a weed bed and caught a nice crappie. I was like, hey, that works out pretty well. Yeah, crappie are weird. You know, one of my biggest crappies ever caught in Colorado, we were trolling walleyes at Cherry Creek, and we used to make a bigger jerk bait um, called the Travato. Mm -hmm. It was a five-inch thicker body. And uh, yeah, I caught like a 15-inch crappie on that, on a five-inch bait trolling crappie. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I caught a 30-inch walleye on Boyson on the rainbow trout-colored Travato. Nice. That's, yeah, that's, that's what, a great lure. The deep-diving Travato is my absolute favorite. I've been, I've been begging and pleading <laughs> to, if we're not going to bring the Travato back, make a deep-diving J-Spec. Right. So, you should, because I, I know I would use it. So Yep. So if a guy wants to get started in lake trout and, you know, doesn't know anything where's just kind of a overview where would you start and where would you point him in the direction would would you start with a guided trip and then you know where's some resources for these guys that haven't got the information you have yeah so i would recommend doing a guided trip you know a lot of guys pride themselves on you know figuring stuff out on their own you can still do that you know going out with a guide kind of it eliminates a lot of stuff a lot of time and money that, of what not to do and then you can go out there, see what they're doing, and then you can expand on that yourself. You know, that's uh, I was fortunate enough, you know, when I started lake trout fishing 10 years ago in Colorado to have a lot of great guys that kind of taught me the ways. And then when I moved out here to the gorge, um, you know, I had some help from some, some guys that have been fishing the gorge uh, for a while. But, you know, I saw what they did and kind of just you know, through YouTube and other stuff. Well, this works here. Let's, I wonder if it works here and it, boom, it does. Mm-hmm. But I, I would start there and then, um, you know, just pay attention. Um, you know, finding the right guide is, is just as important as going on a guided trip. And so with my trips, uh, I try to do it as a in-person educational seminar. Like, Hey, you're paying. I know what I charge, which you know, it's, it's not cheap. And so I, I tell people, if you have questions or you're not understanding something, talk to me about it. This is like a one-on-one fishing seminar with me all day to talk about different stuff. So that way, when you, when you go out there by yourself, it gives you the best opportunity to replicate what we were doing. I think that's a really good point because if, you, if you've never been to Flaming Gorge before, I would recommend you go with the guide. It's, yep. it's big. It's enormous, and it can get dangerous. It's good to go with someone who actually knows the body there, of water. There's a lot of water for the fish to hide in yeah, that lake. Yeah, 94 so, miles long. Yeah. How was somebody get a hold of you? Yeah, so the best way is, uh, you know, Recon Angling on Facebook. Uh, you can go to the website, reconangling.com, and fill out a um, contact submission form, and then I get an email for that way. Um, and that's usually the easiest way is just, you know, shoot me a message, uh, with that whole service thing we were talking about earlier, it's, if you call me, you're probably not going to reach me. I'm probably going to be you're on the you're on the lake fishing. Yeah, I'm on the lake fishing or doing something. Uh, voicemails are wonky out there, so you know, shoot me a message on you know Messenger on Facebook is probably the best way. Instagram or if you you know you see the number on the website, you know, shoot me a text and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Pretty soon, Dave and I are going to have to come down and go fishing with you, so we'll have to set something up here before you go, but just to at least get the conversation started. But I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and also congratulate you because 
you're one of the few people that's a ultimate angler in Wyoming. You're, yep. I need two more. I'm going to get it done <laughs> this year. Um, but I just want to say congratulations Thanks. on that. Cause that's a, that's a big accomplishment. It's tough to do. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Um, a lot of grinding and I was, I was trying, uh, in competition with one of your relatives to be the first <laughs> and, uh, guiding got in the way, but it yeah. was, uh, it, it, it's, it's a pretty cool program they have. Yeah, and Danny, I got to give him kudos. You know, having bone cancer and getting that done, yeah, it's impressive. Um, he he worked really hard for that, and and he's another really good yep. multi-species angler. So. And, and we've had him on. So if yeah. you want to go listen to Danny's episode, talk about muskies. Yeah, yeah, he's the musky pike guy, that's for sure. But again, thank you so much for coming on, and um, you know, I'd love to have you back too. I mean, yeah. we can go in depth on more species and different tactics and things because you've done a lot of different things. For sure, yeah, it's fun. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So just got to give a shout out to our sponsors as well. If you want to go play with lake trout, I can tell you a spoon that works really well. It's the PK jigging spoon. So if you're looking at the red dot glow pattern and the fire tiger glow, those work really well, especially for those pup lake trout. If you want to hammer the snot out of those things, take some of those down to the gorge. You can do that. You they, could also get an antelope tag and do a cast and blast. There so you go. could there be, you go. Uh, yeah. you know, doing some lake trout fishing and some antelope hunting on oh. that gorge. So There's that red so dot glow do. works really good for kokanee, the flutterfish, one of my favorite. And for burbot. Yep. Yeah, at the burbot bash every year, somebody's got a red dot glow and is just smacking those burbots. So. Yep. I have had two or three people ask me, you know, you're, you're pushing <laughs> PK lure, you're pushing high mountain seasoning, you're pushing, you know, bow spider. And I'm like, well, we push products and company that, that work and we, <laughs> and we believe in. Yep. So go to pklure.com. You can check out their new um, open water lineup. They've got a lot of different things, especially for walleye. If you're a walleye fisherman and you're pulling harnesses they've got a lot of cool options and innovative products out there the reef rig is the newest of those and it's pretty cool and then of course high mountain seasonings like i mentioned if you go down and you catch a bunch of these pup lake trout with shane you get them flayed out take them home throw them in some high mountain seasonings brine brine them up and smoke them and i would recommend either alder or applewood it really makes a nice smoked fish, wouldn't you agree, Shane? Oh yeah, it's it's hard to beat. Apple would be my go-to. That's so when we come on the boat, everything. I expect smoked fish for snack because <laughs> <laughs> you're you're kind of caging a Tasmanian devil right. on the boat all day for oh, for lake trout fishing. It. Might and even bring some uh, elk for you. There we go. Hey, there you go. And last but not least, check out Bow Spider. You know, we're here at the Bow Hunting Convention. This is kind of the place to be, but if you want a good way to pack around your bow, go to bowspider.com and get that done. And of course, we need your support. We love having guys like Shane on and, you know, to help our show, just tell your friends about it, you know, um, let people download, know. Download, subscribe. Yeah. yeah, let people know. Like I was talking to a guy today. He didn't know how to download an episode. I showed him. So, I mean, you know, you might have to show some people, but we're really relying on you. So um, if you could do that, that would help us immensely. Grab your dad or your uncle's phone and just download them and set them <laughs> for pre-downloads. Here, all you got to do is press play. Exactly. So until next time, we'll come back with another episode of Radcast Outdoors. Mm-hmm.